All right, so today on our podcast, we're bringing back our intern, Olivia, and we're going to keep talking about domestic violence during um, this Domestic Violence Awareness Month. So, Olivia, do you want to just sort of take it away on some of the things that you wanted to update us on? Yes. So, hi, everyone, again. Um, today, we wanted to start with an update from the Gabby Petito case, and we have an update from the coroner's office from the autopsy of Gabby. And they did officially rule it a homicide with the cause of death being strangulation. So we kind of wanted to like dive into strangulation um, specifically on how it sort of relates to domestic violence and intimate partner violence um, and kind of what that even can be sort of a sign of. So the first thing we want to kind of say is that the purpose of strangulation isn't always death. And it can be used as a tactic for power and control over an individual. So this may or may not have been the first time that Gabby experienced strangulation. And obviously at this point, it did lead to her death. Um, But in general, we just kind of want to talk about strangulation as a topic for domestic violence and how it can impact victims and how the perpetrators kind of use it as a tool for that control. So there are other tactics that they can use, but mainly it kind of relates to control over the victim physically and kind of emotionally and psychologically, because at that moment when you're experiencing that form of abuse, you are obviously having physical symptoms. You're not able to breathe. There's kind of that panic of being under the thumb of someone else and not being able to get out of their grasp. But there's also the thought process of, is this going to be the last time this happens to me? Is Mm -hmm. this going to be it? Am I going to, you know, see past this moment? And I think with, you know, oftentimes with physical abuse, um, we, we, we oftentimes will connect physical abuse with domestic violence and there's things like broken bones or bruises or black eyes and things like that. But with strangulation, it can really be done with no um, outward, you know, you, visually you can't really see the effects of it um, oftentimes. So it's kind of one of those silent things too that can also be really, really dangerous. And going along with kind of like silent things of domestic violence, obviously when a lot of people think about domestic violence, the first thing you think of is that physical abuse and those things like Caitlin said that you can see on um, a survivor of domestic violence. You can see broken bones, you can see bruises, you can see, um, you know, welts, cuts, etc. But you can't really see what's happening to them psychologically, what's happening to them emotionally. So when that type of violence is emotional and it's psychological and it's more of that coercion and manipulation, you're not really able to see those things as clearly as you can see for say like a black eye. So those types of abuse are not necessarily more common than the physical type of abuse, but they are harder to see and therefore harder to prove in a court of law. And they are like some of the most dangerous. Um, There's actually an organization called um, the Training Institute on Strangulation Prevention. And one of their researchers um, stated that batterers who strangle their victims are more likely to engage in other extreme acts of violence. Um, And he goes on to say, it's a message that there are no limits to which he won't go. The odds are he's willing to kill. And that oftentimes... um, strangulation is the most deadly form of abuse or um, power or control. There is actually a bone. I was watching something recently about a bone in your neck that... Hyoid? Yes. The hyoid bone? Yes. And that when when you're strangled, that bone is really easy to break. Um, that can lead to a quick um, death. Yeah. 
And I think also it's important to note here, we are using kind of pronouns of he and she as perpetrator and victim, but obviously we're kind of talking in the context of Gabby's case, which was a heterosexual relationship and domestic violence is not something that only heterosexual relationships experience. Um, so do keep that in mind as we kind of use that he and she, because domestic violence is the number one killer of women in the United States besides things like heart disease. Um, so it is, we are using those pronouns in that sense, but it is something that is happens in um, not like heteronormative relationships mm -hmm. as well. Definitely. And I think too, just along with like the heteronormative relationships, there is kind of an increased power dynamic in those relationships because we do live in a society that leans towards patriarchal. So we do have that male privilege that goes along with the, just like physically men, depending on obviously the stature of mm -hmm. the women, but in the general sense, men do have, typically have like physical power over women. If you're just going to match mm -hmm. someone up, you know, with the average, you know, five, three women to mm -hmm. the average five, 10 man, there is that just power dynamic there. But there's also just the thought process of mm, people in our society tend to believe men over women. And we see that through victim blaming and, and I think a perfect example of that is the body cam footage of Gabby. Yes. Um, you know, he chuckles and calls her crazy. Um, and then they side with him saying that, yeah, she is emotional and crying and, and they can talk to him and they give him the hotel room and he's the victim. And um, so I think that kind of is a perfect example. And it's even interesting, too, because, again, most of intimate partner violence is against women. And even knowing that, they still went with that like dynamic and that storyline in their head that he was the victim in this situation definitely and we also see this another another sort of example that we will use today and in following episodes is um the netflix show made um and so we see this as well in that um in the court case that she goes through um as well as how kind of the main characters don't see anything wrong with her partner who um, is clearly abusing her um, so it's another kind of one of those examples yeah and those tactics are kind of things like minimizing denying or um, kind of blaming the victim instead of the perpetrator and I think you can kind of see that in the way that their friends react to their relationship and they kind of just say oh you're like you're overreacting mm -hmm. especially in like the very first episode you know spoiler alert she leaves because of an altercation um, where there's glass shattering and it kind of gets into her daughter's hair and she kind of sees for the first time that potential of this relationship harming her child and that's one of the reasons that she decides kind of to make that move to leave mm -hmm. but you know her parents say you know it's not a big deal like it's just an overreaction mm -hmm. on her part and she's the only one who's recognizing the danger that her and her child are in yeah and there is a part and i think it is that first episode when she's goes to the friend's house to see if she can stay um and then they're friends with him as well and so i think the girl tells her it's not that big of a deal he already called he says he's sorry and then her boyfriend comes out and says like no stay he's on his way here and then when she leaves he's like why do you have to be such a bitch and so she's the one who's trying to protect herself and her daughter yet now she's even being called a bitch because she's overreacting and she's being the bad one and it's interesting too because 
you think of like these kinds of relationships and it's really just between two people, but the way that other people react to our relationships also impact our views on our relationships and our views on ourselves. And in that situation specifically, it's really targeting, you know, her self-esteem, her self-confidence, her self-worth mm-hmm. of thinking, you know, I need to leave and get out of this situation right now because this was a dangerous situation and everyone around her saying, it's not a big deal, you're overreacting. And mm-hmm. she's not overreacting. Something right. did happen that is out of the norm, but they kind of just believe, you know, oh, it's just an off-the-rails thing. It's never going to happen again. And a lot of um, survivors, you know, it takes them a couple times, a couple tries to leave for good. And one of those things is because they want to believe that it's never going to happen again mm-hmm. and this isn't the real person that they fell in love with because 99% of the chance, pinches of times, the abuser doesn't start out, you know, straight gung-ho into it abusing mm-hmm. you. Why would you stay if that was the case? It yeah. takes a while to kind of build up that behavior. Definitely. And it's worsens over time, but can also get better um, when the abuser sees that, oh, I might lose this person or I need to back off a little bit. Like they can back off a little bit and they can put on the charm um, and increase the manipulation so that the victim does stay or doesn't consider leaving. Um, So they really do maintain the power and control when they use those manipulation tactics. And that in and of itself is generally considered the cycle of abuse. So there's approximately four stages where there's like this tension building phase where the like abusive actions have not happened yet, but there's like this tension building between the individuals that are involved. And then there's the actual incident of abuse, whether that be a physical altercation or, um, you know, just an extreme session of like Mm -hmm. emotional manipulation, et cetera. And then after that incident happens, there's this cool down phase where there's like reconciliation where the individual who is the perpetrator is, you know, they are sorry for their actions. Mm -hmm. And maybe like, especially if there is any uh, alcohol or drug use involved, they come down and they're sober and they Mm -hmm. don't have those same reactions as they did when they were under the influence. And then there's this calm phase and they don't last a specific amount of time. But when you're in that reconciliation and calm phase, that's kind of considered the honeymoon phase of, oh, this is the person I fell in love with. They're not going to do that again. And both parties want to believe that's Mm -hmm. the truth. And I think you kind of see that in in made of like everyone wants to believe that's not going to happen again, but they obviously it kind of continues as you watch the show with different episodes that kind of happen. Definitely. And I think, um, I mean, I have a... um a case that our client that I worked with, and I'm obviously going to change some information here um, regarding her, but she was in a domestic violence, multiple domestic violence relationships. She grew up in a domestic violence um, like household. Parents were very abusive to each other. Um, and then she escaped that home environment. Um, in one of her first relationships, um, she sought out, you know, this, or I shouldn't say she sought out. She engaged in a relationship with someone who could take care of her. She could live with that person. Um, And then um, after about a month, um, she got pregnant. Um, And once she found out she was pregnant, the abuse started. Um, And so there was lots of times of, you know, really intense physical abuse. Um, But she knew that she couldn't leave because now she had a child Um, And she was never going to be able to, like, support herself, get her own place. Um, So she stayed until the baby was born. um, And then when the baby was born, that, like, the crying and being up in the middle of the night and the noise, that upset him even more. So the abuse got worse. 
Um, and then that individual was uh, ended up going to prison for something completely unrelated, and she was homeless. And so the next relationship that she got into was also um, abusive. Not right away because he sort of rode in on this, you know, like in his horse. Yes, exactly. <laughs> like, and and he was great to her, and he bought her what she needed, and he supported her and the baby. But when he would drink, he would get really abusive. And I remember being in a session. Um, and she was acting like very forgetful and distracted. And so I asked her like, are you doing okay? And she said that she woke up on the floor the day before and didn't know how she got there. But the night before that, um, they had gotten into an argument and when she woke up, there was blood all over her and she had like a huge goose egg on her head. Mm -hmm. So in that situation, she likely got a concussion, um, forgetful after that, um, and she never was able to seek medical treatment out of fear that he would get in trouble. Um, and so, I mean, there's so many pieces, like, in that situation of just the strong history of not even knowing a safe relationship, mm. um, the manipulation that happened consistently, um, and then even, like, if she never made a police report, so... Uh, we even see that in May. Like, if you're not making police reports, it's hard to document that it's actually happening. If you're not going to the doctor, like, it's, again, hard to document that it's happening. Um, and then that, like, sort of goes along with not being able to hold someone accountable, unfortunately. Yeah. Um, tiptoeing back to the beginning of your statement, um, there is this statistic by, it's the Board of Obstetrics and maternity or pregnancy I don't know what the actual board is called it's the board of obstetrics and something but I can't remember the rest of it but they put out a statistic that there is in a lot of the abusive situations that they encounter the abuse doesn't start until after pregnancy Mm -hmm. so there's that stressor of pregnancy and adding another person into the dynamic that often starts those abusive situations Mm -hmm. and then with the added person to the relationship, the added person of a child to the relationship, there is another person, one, for that abuser to abuse, for the main victim to try to protect. Mm -hmm. And it also, there's obstacles in terms of, like that client you were explaining, she didn't have anywhere to go. They were going to be homeless if she left. So are you going to put your child in that situation or are you just going to try to stick it out? Especially if if your perpetrator is not abusive necessarily towards your child. It's mostly Mm -hmm. directed towards you. Obviously, we know that when your parents are in a um, domestic violence situation, it does impact you. It's one of the ACEs, Mm -hmm. um, adverse childhood events, that can really impact your health growing up and your mental health growing up. But, you know, in that situation, is it better to be homeless, which is also an adverse childhood event that can impact your health and mental health growing up? Or is it better to stay in a situation where at least you are fed and housed, Mm -hmm. even if your parent is experiencing some abuse? Yeah. And I think that that's also something that perpetrators use in terms of manipulation of, you know, you're a bad parent. Like, if you leave, I'm going to go to court and I'm going to get custody of the children because the perpetrator in this set is especially if there's no police reports, if they're the one with the stable job mm-hmm. and they're the one bringing in the income, they do look like the stable parent. And, yeah. you know, back back in the days where they would always kind of give custody to the mother, that's not necessarily how it is nowadays, right. which is good. That's a good 
progressive mm-hmm. thing that we're doing. But in domestic violence situations, especially when the perpetrator is the father, it doesn't really help mothers who are unable to work because their abuser doesn't let them or they have a very spotty work yeah. history because their abuser is abusing them at work and like, you know, causing them to lose their job because they won't let them go to work or they only have one car and they control when they leave the house right. or the kids are sick and the perpetrator is not going to stay home. Yeah, so not kind of to mention too, like um, oftentimes domestic violence perpetrators will isolate the victim quite a bit. So that's even like pitting them against their family, their support system, their friends. So if someone wants to flee, they generally don't have those supports that they once had. Um, and the perpetrator has lots of supports, you know, they have people who think that she's just crazy and, um, they have, you know, their back. So when they go to court, it's like, oh yeah, we have all these supports and we can do all these things. She's going to be homeless and she has no one. So there's, it's not safe for the kid to go with her. And it's kind of like, we see that in maid, um, not to the extent she does have some supports, but there's a lot of situations where the victim truly has no one. She's been so isolated that she does not have a single person that she can go to. And even the people that she's supposed to depend on, like her parents are not supportive in the way that she would need them Mm -hmm. to be because they, they don't take her abusive situation seriously. seriously. Yeah. Definitely. And and this we're referring to maid in this situation. Um, and she I mean, while the mom is is ill, mentally ill, um, and has her own kind of set of challenges, um then um we see the mom being sort of um and, and trying to really get her to stay with him and she has her own set of abusive relationships and things like that. So this, the sort of the systemic cycle of abuse is pretty important as well. But then even her dad, um, is a perpetrator himself. Yeah. Um, and supports her partner, um, and doesn't see anything wrong. He just sees them as struggling versus him actually being emotionally and verbally abusive. Yeah. And on like the, the more psych side of that, there is things like social learning theory where if this is the situation that you grew up in and this is the relationship that you saw your parents in, you tend to believe that that's how relationships work. Like mm-hmm. that's how the power dynamics in relationships work. And even if you see, you know, other healthy relationships, if you didn't grow up seeing that, you know, on a day-to-day basis of how your parents are treated or, you know, how your parents react to certain things, that's going to be your assumption of how relationships are. And you, you know, unconsciously look for those things in relationships. And even like your attachment style of if your parents have like a domestic violence situation going on, you're more likely to have an an insecure attachment and that impacts your um, romantic relationships and even your friendships Mm -hmm. in the future. Definitely. And like, I think it could be as simple as, you know, when your parents um, showed emotion, did they slam doors and yell? You're going to be more likely to slam doors and yell when you show emotion, even as a child, but also as an adult. Yeah. And those can, like, domestic violence situations in parents can lead to their children being perpetrators, but it can also lead to children being victims. Okay. So there's kind of the, the twofold on that side of just, like, mm-hmm. the cycle of abuse continuing when your parents are in like an abusive situation but it's also you know people who are in those like interpersonal violence relationships they don't tend to think oh this is what I'm in I'm in a domestic violence situation that's not your thought process because again like kind of we explained it builds over time so it doesn't start with you know a straight sucker punch to the face day one it starts with you know 
oh, I don't think that you should see that friend today. Like, I don't really like how they've been treating you. I don't like how they've been acting. Or, you know, that friend is really promiscuous and I'm not comfortable with you being in that situation. Or your mom was really mean to me. I don't think she, like, approves of our relationship. If you love me, you know, you just, you won't go there. Uh You'll stay with me. So it kind of builds and builds and builds until the the victim finds themselves in a situation where they don't have anyone to support them. Mm -hmm. And they by the time they realize that they're in a situation where they do need help, those supports aren't there. Mm -hmm. And domestic violence isn't widely talked about outside of, you know, the circles that we're in, in the sense that people know immediately who they can reach out to. Um, And I think we put the resources in our last, Mm -hmm. um, in our last podcast episode. So if you do need those resources, please reach out to them. But just, even if it's not you, it's a friend, just kind of knowing that those resources exist is one of the reasons kind of we're doing this podcast. Exactly. And knowing that, you know, I think made is a really good example to show you, um, like what, what is not okay. Um, because I mean, in that situation, I think oftentimes people would say, you know, if there's not any bruises, if there's not any evidence to support that this person is actually harming you, then are they really, is it really that bad? And the bottom line is it is. Like, you deserve to be in a healthy relationship where you're respected and safe and, you know, you can make your own decisions, you can have tough conversations without fear of retaliation or abuse or harm. Um, And, you know, there's probably a lot of really unhealthy relationships out there, people that we know who are in unhealthy relationships. Um, So increasing that awareness about what a healthy relationship is, what safety really truly means um, is super important. Yeah. And I think too, it's that we don't want to think about these things. It's not it's not a fun topic to speak about. You know, it's something that we don't necessarily want to to have conversations with our friends about. But if we if we are open about having these conversations mm-hmm. with you know our girlfriends and you know our significant others having conversations, you know, men having these conversations is extremely important. Yeah. And being willing to, you know, correct the behavior of other men that they're seeing, it's kind of, it's everyone's job to make those corrections as we see them and to kind of get this topic into everyday conversation. Right. I really like that point that you brought up because uh, when I watched Nate, I watched it with my husband and uh, we binged all 10 episodes in one sitting um, because we were both super, super invested. And one of my most favorite parts about watching um, this series with him was that we took the time to pause and he could ask questions like what does that mean or why is he doing that or why is she doing that or when she met with a social worker and there was like literally no resources he asked like is this really how it is is it really that hard um and so we could have those conversations um and then there were a lot of things that I was like as it was happening I was like oh that's a red flag right there like just wait, something more is going to happen. And then something did. And he's like, how'd you know that? And I'm like, well, because like I study this or I have clients who've experienced it or whatnot. Um, and so it was a really, really cool experience. And now when we, you know, just talk about, you know, different people that we know's relationship or like we hear from other people, um, or watch other shows, he's picking up on it and he'll say things like, is is that very healthy or (laughs) things like that. And it's, I mean, it truly is. We, it's all of our jobs. We all have to have the conversation. And it's especially important when men are learning about it and seeing the warning signs and understanding sort of from a female or even victim perspective of why that can be triggering, why that can be unhealthy. 
Um, so that was pretty cool. So watch it with your spouse too. Yeah. <laughs> and I think too, it's interesting because obviously Caitlin and I are women. <laughs> and I think in general, because of the society we live in and just because of the rampant violence against women in our country, we as women have a different experience of the world than our male counterparts. So Caitlin and I are both married um, to men. So we kind of have those heteronormative relationships, but in the sense of, you know, recognizing a red flag is generally a little bit more easy for the two of us. And not just because we're mental health professionals, but because we've seen them in mm-hmm. real life of, you know, just the rules that you're given as a little girl of, you know, travel in a pack. Don't go to the bathroom by yourself. Make sure that when you're out, you always keep your drink on you. Watch mm-hmm. the bartender pour your drink. Like those little subtle things that were that are ingrained into our head as females mm-hmm. is so intricate to the way that we experience the world. And so I think it is sometimes a little bit easier for us to pick up on those, you know, foreshadowing things in exactly. shows. But it's so good to keep our the male friends and the male relationships that we have invested in safety as much as we are for you know men and women kind of experiencing these things yeah definitely and I think I mean in the Gabby Petito case specifically there was an you know an experience when she and Brian were at a restaurant and there was a TikToker who went on TikTok and talked about how her and her boyfriend watched him get aggressive um with staff members um and I just I think I watched that video multiple times and the only thing that like I could think was like what if you or your boyfriend had stepped in and asked her if she was okay or known enough about domestic violence um, to ask questions or intervene, she could be alive, you know, so... And obviously bystander intervention is something that we want to see more of in the world, but the number one rule of bystander intervention is not to interfere if your safety is going to be Mm -hmm. compromised. Obviously there are professionals and those people at the coffee shop did call 911 to report this as like a domestic situation, but it just goes to show that our, um, our first responders do really need that extra training on domestic violence that we kind of get as mental health professionals but being able to even just to recognize that this is something that's going on that's not right and being able to make that report Mm -hmm. is something that could potentially lead to saving people's lives yep 100 so as we kind of continue to have this discussion throughout the month of october um we're gonna do a little bit of a deeper dive on the show made um as well as any other shows out there um that people are watching that they feel like seem to be a really good representation of domestic violence or intimate intimate personal intimate partner violence um so if you have any recommendations uh let us know we're down to binge some netflix series and tell you what we think um so thanks for listening today um and we'll see you next time Thank you for tuning in to the CJSW podcast. The CJSW aims to discuss a variety of topics, and while we are not claiming to be experts on every topic we discuss, this podcast is meant to be a conversational platform curated from both personal, educational, and professional experiences. If there's anything from today's episode that you would like to provide feedback to us on, please DM us on Instagram at Center for Justice Social Work or visit us at our website, thecenterforjusticesocialwork.com.